Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, November 11th, 2011. You know, I'm <laughs> I am so looking forward to hour number two today. I almost want to just start at hour number two, and, and then I realized, you know, you can't really do that because then hour number two doesn't have meaning. You have to actually go through hour one to get to hour two. Just a note to myself there. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. One of the things we have to do here is um, cover some of the current controversy that exists out there in general American evangelicalism. Uh, There's a group of folks out there that uh, we lovingly refer to here as the seeker-driven movement, and there's certain pastors, and I use that term loosely. I'm I'm uh, in the po- I'm to the point of transitioning to a different word, and the and that word is not pastor, because a pastor, a, a pastor itself is a shepherding term. It and when you think of the job of a shepherd, you know a shepherd's job is to care for, to feed, to protect, to bind up, to. Yeah, to take care of sheep, and 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 it's a thankless job. In fact, uh, I remember a few years ago I was watching um, a series of um, programs that was put out uh, by the History Channel International, and uh, you know, you know, I of course, you know, <laughs> I feel like an international man of mystery every time I watch the History Channel International station because because it. <laughs> Helps me get outside of the walls of the United States, at least not literally, but you know, figuratively, to you know, take a look at how uh, things are done historically around the world. And I, I remember there was a series of um, of broadcasts that were put together uh, that was examining uh, the the life of people who lived during the medieval period. And the guy hosting it was the guy who plays Baldrick on Black Adder, and so I, I I forget the actor's name, but it's really interesting. There's there's in fact there's an entire movement of people who are archaeologists, but they're like living archaeologists, and what they're trying to do is is you know put together little compounds or experiments. 
uh, using implements, if you would, of the of the time period of you know of different time periods, you know, building houses using the methods and the building material available in order to kind of recreate uh, history uh, or you know you know at least living archaeology, if you would. And so uh, they, he, I remember he did an entire um, uh, segment looking at uh, shepherds, uh, medieval shepherds. And just walking through and spending time doing some shepherding. You can think, almost think of it as like the medieval version of that program, you know, the world's dirtiest job. And so Baldrick, I don't know the actor's name. And I know I'm going to get emails from people telling me the actor. <laughs> it's just, it goes with the territory here. You know, anyway, so, so the idea is, is that he spent time, you know, Living the life of a medieval shepherd, and um, and it was such a thankless and difficult job that uh, medieval shepherds didn't even really have time to attend church. And so, one of the rituals that would uh, that shepherds would do when they would bury their own is that they would take a tuft of sheep's wool and and cut it out, snip it out, and and put it in the hands of the deceased shepherd. And the idea was is that God was supposed to be able to look then and say, oh, that's the reason that guy wasn't in church, because he was a shepherd. And, they, and they, there, so there was some lore that had built up around the shepherding job that, that God really had a special place in his heart for shepherds because uh, David was a shepherd and because the, the birth of Jesus Christ was announced first uh, to shepherds. And so, um, and so, you know, the, the shepherds were the first there to worship. And so, uh, there was a, a medieval practice that, you know, they'd take a, a tough wall. But I mean, I remember watching the, that, that particular program and that segment going, good gravy. What a difficult job that had, that had to be. And, and I mean, part of their job was spent literally, you know, cutting things out of the, you know, burrs that get stuck in the, in the wool of the sheep, and and some of these sheep are sheep are ornery, uh, you know. Some you know some of them have a bad attitude, and if you get near them, they bite. And you know, it's just <laughs> thinking sounds exactly like the job of a pastor, if you ask me. But anyway, so um, the uh, so one of the things we do here is we cover uh, what's the seeker driven movement, and these are, these guys call themselves pastors, but that that word has no meaning. Um, because they don't care for um, the sheep under their care, they're more like cattle ranchers. You know, they they got a big herd, and um, and uh, it, it. But uh, they don't really. You know, th- th- I don't think these guys spend real time truly praying for the sheep in their care. Um, they don't meet with them personally. Don't spend time with them, uh, eating meals with them, and things like that. About the only people they spend time with are the, their hand chosen people on their leadership team, and and then they you know they beat them and uh, and berate them and and uh, scold them for e- even having the the foolish audacity to to dare to expect them to you know to to, you know, to do the job of a pastor. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, so I don't refer to them. Uh, I'm I'm in the I'm transitioning. I'm not referring to them as pastors anymore. I'm referring to them as leaders, and uh, and uh, use the uh, the German word for leader, 
in order to you know and not not to, just to be provocative for provocative uh, the sake of pro, you know what, provocativism provo you know anyway I, I'm not trying to be provocative for the sake of being provocative I'm trying to make a point in that the German word is Führer okay so um, when if you hear me referring to a Führer uh, that's you know a a, a young vision casting a uh, 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 leader in the church who uh, who thinks that his job is to cast vision and get the masses behind his vision it's their responsibility to make his vision come to place anyway so there's there's some there's a there's a lot of collision in the church between um pastoral leadership and churches where there's pastors and these newfangled guys who have all these new leadership methodologies and and things like that, and uh, and uh, recently we've been covering the controversy regarding James McDonald and the Elephant in the Room Two conference, and uh, that that things had kind of simmered down and settled down, and um, and then James McDonald. <laughs> Posted a video on his website, and it he drew the fire of uh, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog, and uh, you know Phil Johnson, who works very closely with John MacArthur, uh, drew fire from that from <laughs> Phil Johnson, which was a, like an excellent response, and then he had to respond to Phil Johnson's response. Well, all of that is just introduction to basically say. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that controversy because how this little well, little little um, skirmish broke out and played out in the last 24 hours is very instructive when it comes to sound biblical doctrine, good thinking, and being discerning. And so I'm going to play that all out for you. I've been promising for the past few days to uh, to talk about Patricia King. And you know, I've I've got a segment from her that she recently posted that is all it's like kind of a it's like a montage in all in one video. It's not intended to be a montage of some classic Patricia King things all just kind of thrown into one video. And uh, so where I'm going to spend some time with that. I hopefully I get to this uh, uh, email that I got from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley recently. He sent me an email. And uh, I haven't done an email segment in a couple of weeks and uh, where he wanted to talk about gladiators. And uh, he had a great point there. And then, of course, I still want to get to this Francis Chan article. And, and so, ay, ay, ay. But, uh, but hour number two, the, the, the one I wanted to start with, but you can't start with hour number two because you have to actually go through hour number one to get to hour number two. It's just, again, it's just one of those weird things. Apparently, even adopting a postmodern mindset will not help you to be able to begin at hour number two because you can't. You have to, yeah, there's this time thing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> at hour number two, um, oh man, one of the most amazing lectures I have heard Albert Muller deliver to date. And I got to tell you, I have the utmost respect professionally and theologically for Albert Muller. This guy does his homework, and when he speaks, he speaks with authority. He speaks as one who, who really has a commanding knowledge of the, of the subject matter. And, okay, now, so let me kind of set this up. Yeah, so I'm yeah, you know, I'm like falling over myself trying to talk about this thing because it's just so exciting. Anyway, 
So here's what happened. Okay, I, I follow uh, Albert Mueller on Twitter. I don't think he reciprocates. Okay, it, it, no big deal. No big deal. You know, I just, you know, Twitter is one of those things where, you know, you know, it, 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 in many senses, it's kind of a one-way street. I use Twitter. On, I have multiple accounts, by the way. Just, but I, the, the one that I'm on frequently is uh, the Pirate Christian uh, at Pirate Christian. But I have, I have different uh, Twitter accounts that I use for research purposes and things like that. And uh, in fact, one of them, I, I the, okay, <laughs> this tells you how much of a nerd I am. Okay, I have a, I have a, uh, a Twitter account that's set up to my Google Reader. And uh, and what it does is it takes each of the individual stories that come into my Google Reader and takes and links to those stories and sends them out as individual tweets. Why? Because it helps me with my research. And, but uh, that was fun to program. But uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes I wonder if I should just not talk so much about the what a nerd I am. Anyway. So coming back to this, okay, so Albert Mueller, I follow him on Twitter, and I was watching uh, what the, the tweets that he was sending out on Reformation Day, and, uh, and he made it clear he was traveling, and it turns out he ended up in Philadelphia, and uh, so he went from Louisville to uh, Chicago, from Chicago to Philadelphia, and he almost didn't make it. Uh, you know, he was tweeting about his, you know, his, his travel statuses along the way. Even tweeted about conversation he had with a a gal on the airplane regarding Luther, and it turns out on Reformation Day he's at I think it's Tenth Avenue Presbyterian in uh, in uh, uh, Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, and the and his lecture that evening is on Luther's hymnody, uh, hymnody, and uh, I I just had the opportunity to hear it for the first time this morning, and oh man. It was just stellar. It, I mean, it's fantastic, and it not because it's dealing with Luther per se. I mean, he if if uh, if Calvin was a big hymn writer and he was doing it on Calvin, I think I would have had the same excitement about it. And here's the reason why: is because what is discussed in there is so important for us to grasp and it's one of the things that's at the very heart and center of what's come to be known as the so-called worship wars but the issue is is that uh, i mean yeah so here's what i'm going to do all right so uh, i'm going to play the lecture for you in hour number two i assure you you don't want to miss this and here's the deal i can't really add to what um, Mueller says, I mean, he's just, you know, he's just, what's the point of adding to perfection? I mean, it'd be, it'd be like me coming up and trying to add brush strokes to, you know, a Michelangelo painting. It does, that doesn't make any sense. You know, like I could really add anything to that. So instead, what I'm going to do at the end of his lecture is circle back and reiterate a point. Okay. And give you something to think about. Okay. As it pertains to what's the songs that are currently being sung in these seeker-driven churches, and in many churches that aren't even seeker-driven, uh, the, the songs that are being sung in them, as opposed to the hymns that have been sung since the time of the Reformation. So, so that's what I'm going to do. So anyway, we we have got so much ground to cover. It's you know, it's not even funny. So, you know, make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers if the weather permits. I mean, here we, we had snow yesterday in Indianapolis. I was, I was so excited. 
you know, because it was cold. It was cold outside, and I'm thinking, oh, I really would love to see some snow. And we had a we had a full blown snow flurry thing come through. It was spectacular. I mean, the the snowflakes were the size of of like you know silver dollars. It was fantastic. Anyway, so fuzzy bunny slippers, if the uh, weather permits, adult beverages. We don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You do not want to become. Um, enslaved to a gift that God has given us. That just doesn't make any sense. So uh, with that, we'll dive into the program proper, and we'll start off with our email here. Here we go. Okay, so I got an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, and uh, he's chiming in regarding that church that had the um, mixed martial arts cage fight in the um, in their parking lot. And uh, I had made a point regarding gladiatorial matches. Now, Pastor Charmley's father, in case you all don't know, is like one of the foremost like historians in the world. So, uh, you know, he knows a couple of things. So, Pastor Charmley sent me an email, and it said, "Dear Chris, uh, the 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 headline, the subject reads gladiatorial fighting." Okay, now. My point was is that I didn't see much of a difference between the gladiatorial matches in the ancient world and these mixed martial arts cage fights being held in church parking lots, except for the fact that, uh, you know, in gladiatorial matches, people die, okay? Um, you know, now, of course, that's, you know, we've now had people die in the parking lot uh, or, you know, uh, as a result of injuries they sustained in the parking lot at Guts Church, but that's a different thing. But Pastor Charmley sent me an email to fill me in on a little bit of historical data regarding gladiators. Here's what he says. Dear Chris, in relation to the uh, uh, to the item on the church cage fights and gladiatorial combat, you may be interested to know that modern scholars are now fairly certain that not all gladiatorial combat was to the death. Hmm. A, a gladiator was, after all... An investment. What with the cost of buying him, training him, and equipping him. And popular gladiators were, now here the film Gladiator is fairly accurate, they were like rock stars. Uh Uh-huh. That's not to say that there wasn't bloodshed, but that many combats were fought until the loser yielded And then he would be taken away and patched up by his team's doctors, much like a modern cage fight. There would be blood, but no death. This is thought to be the case because fights to the death were, in the imperial era, advertised as such, a circumstance that gives the impression that most combats were not. The combat was usually refereed and had set rounds. In fact, then, cage-fighting churches are doing something that, in the first century, would have been much like gladiatorial combats, but with weapons. In the name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Okay. So there you there you have it. Okay, so the, historically speaking, um, you have to think of uh, gladiators as well an investment. And the last thing you want to do is invest in a bunch of people that are being killed on a regular basis. That would make gladiatorial matches apparently cost prohibitive. 
And so um, the <laughs> Pastor Charmley's point is, is that there appears to be a direct one-to-one correlation between a mixed martial arts cage fight in a church parking lot and the ancient practice of gladiatorial combat. Aha. Uh-huh. The only difference is, is that they used weapons while the only weapon allowed in a mixed martial art combat is your hand. Yikes. Scary thoughts. So uh, there is no difference. Uh, the, the, how do they say it? How's, how does Dr. Rosenblatt put it? Uh, put it he says that a difference that makes no difference is, well, no difference at all. Moving along. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every time I hear this music, <laughs> I begin to giggle uncontrollably. It must be the spirit, you know, the spirit falling upon me and giving me holy laughter. <clears throat> no, not really. All right, so uh, that's the music to announce that, uh, well, we've got another installment from XPmedia.com, uh, home of uh, the videos produced and published and uh, dis- distributed to the world from Patricia King. The the name of this particular video, by the way, is entitled Super Strength. Super Strength. And and the reason I'm playing this, well, obviously, it's a classic Patricia King. It, it, like I said, it, like I've been trying to tell you, it's kind of like you know several of Patricia King's standard MO type of uh, video messages all rolled up into one six-minute video. And and the, the, well, and she does does a miserable job of handling God's word. I'm just wondering if, uh, you know, if we all pitched in, you know, maybe we can um, we can send her to Bible college. <laughs> maybe send her to like a basic uh, biblical hermeneutics class. Um, anything to uh, to help uh, because uh, she's obviously when it comes to her her handling of the Bible, she's at sea without a rudder or. How does this? How does the Bible refer to it as? Oh yeah, being blown hither and yon by every wind of doctrine. So uh, yeah, that's kind of the problem here with Patricia King. So uh, without any further ado, uh, <clears throat> here's the video "Super Strength" by Patricia King. I'm really excited about Isaiah 40 verse 31. It says, "Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary." In the King James version, it reads like this: "But." They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, that word wait means to look for with eagerness, to linger for, to lie and wait for, to collect or to bind together, to be entwined or embraided into. So in other words, we are to to wait upon the Lord, have an expectation Get embraided into him. Get close to him. Wait on him and linger with an expectation that we will have our strength renewed. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, what to do with that? Okay, so, um, all right, so here we are. We're 54 seconds into this. And... (laughs) Already, we've got like a, a, a hermeneutical hurdle to um, to um, to jump over, if you would. And uh, by the way, the three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation: 
this is the rule that clears up like 90 to 95 percent of all bad Bible teaching. It just goes poof and it disappears as soon as you apply these uh, this this these three rules, and they are context, context, and context. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah. Chapter 40. Now, she read verse 31, and you'll notice that it begins with a conjunction, okay? Um, so here's what it says. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Okay, but. Okay, so here's the deal. We're, we're starting off a thought here mid-sentence, Okay. We're beginning a thought in the middle of a sentence, and there's like, here's the, you remember, you know, I've used this metaphor before, but y'all remember uh, ABC's um, Schoolhouse Rocks? Um, yeah, they, they, those videos, you know, the video cartoons that kind of told base, you know, taught basic things. So there was a song out there that the Schoolhouse Rock used, and that was Conjunction Junction, What's That Function? Okay, now, so uh, so here's the deal. But is a conjunction. Now, do you remember the uh, Schoolhouse Rock song? Well, don't worry if you don't. I happen to have it right here. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. Conjunction, junction, how's that function? I got three favorite cars that get most of my job done. Conjunction, junction, what's their I got and, button, or, they'll get you pretty far. And, that's an additive, like this and that. But, that's sort of the opposite, not this, but that. And then there's or, O-R, when you have a choice like this or that. And, button, or, get you pretty far. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up two boxcars and making them run right. And honey, bread and butter, peas and rice. Hey, that's nice. Dirty butt, happy digging and scratching, losing your shoe and a button or two. He's poor but honest, sad but true. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up two cars to one when you say something like this. Choice, either now or later, or no choice. Neither now nor ever. Hey, that's clever. Eat this or that, the growth in or fat. Never mind, I wouldn't do that. I'm fat enough now. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up phrases and clauses that balance like. All right, so there you go. Okay, sorry, I was uh, having a flashback to uh, childhood there, and I, my childhood kind of you know straddled the '70s and the '80s. So I remember watching that when I was on. Um, <clears throat> yeah, when, well, when I was a kid, you know, watching. ABC, Saturday morning cartoons. Anyway, so here's the deal. We've got a problem, okay? When we when we apply our three rules of context, 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 we've got a problem because you'll, you'll notice Patricia King is, is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, that begins with a conjunction. But. And if you remember from the song we just listened to, the job of conjunctions like and, but, and, or is to hook up phrases and clauses, okay? So the idea is, is that you can think of uh, conjunctions as, well, words that, that connect two thoughts together, okay? So we begin with the word but. But. That's a conjunction. Mm-hmm. 
So already we're experiencing dubious Bible interpretation based upon simple grammar. All right, so let's back things up here, and uh, let's apply our rules, uh, context, context, and context. And uh, we'll go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. We're going we're gonna to expand out the context, see if we could figure out what on earth is connected to that conjunction, but. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, uh, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong and power, not one is missing. Talking about the stars in heaven. So why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So this is all part of an extended argument that um, God is, um, well, having with Israel, if you would, uh, it really kind of pointing out the fact that there are no other gods like him. There, In fact, there are no other gods, period. And uh, and he's discussing his greatness, if you would. So, yeah, okay, so he who waits upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall walk out. Okay, well, let's add a little bit more context. I'll just, back, I'll just go into uh, chapter 41. So listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach and then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at the every step? He gives he gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, I, the Lord, the first. And with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the uh, soldering, it is good that they can strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I look from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
Okay, so now we've got the context, and you know, we see what God is doing here. He's pointing Israel back to himself. Okay, now let's see what Patricia King has discovered in this <clears throat> half verse that begins with the conjunction, but see what else she's discovered in there. And I'm so excited about strength renewal because especially, you know, as you get older, we have this promise in the word that says our strength will be renewed. So <laughs> strength renewal. Okay, yeah. So are you feeling old? Do you feel tired and run down? Are you in need of some major strength re- renewal? Well, don't you don't need vitamins or minerals and and exercise and things like that. No, just wait on the Lord and he'll give you some some good old-fashioned strength renewal. This is kind of turning God into a commodity, don't you think? What does the word renew mean? It means to change, to substitute, to alter, to change for the better, and to show newness. Wouldn't you love your strength renewed every single day? Well, yes, I would. How How do I experience that? Or like, what if you get a little bit tired throughout the day and you think, oh, I need some strength and you realize that there's... So I don't need monster drinks or energy drinks or an extra cup of coffee or even some caffeinated tea. No, I just need to wait upon the Lord. Promise in the word that says you can have it renewed. You can have it made absolutely new, fresh strength all the time. Really? Renewal all the time. How? By having an anticipation, waiting on the Lord, lingering for him, having an entwining in his love, an entwining in his presence, just saying, Lord. And and how how exactly do I linger and entwine myself in his presence? And boy, isn't it weird? She's just seeing things in that verse that just aren't there. And well, of course, you know. I'm sure she's just imagining that that's the stuff that's hooked up to the front end of that conjunction. I'm going to be embraided in you, one with you. The word strength refers to actually your human strength. So if you're feeling in your human strength that you're weak, the promise says that your strength will be renewed when you wait upon the Lord. And so as my days are, so shall my strength be. And that's a promise for you as well. But it also refers to the strength of God working in your life and the strength of angels and the strength of wealth. And the strength of wealth, too? That's in there, too? I had no... I didn't even see that when I read it in context. Weird. This is amazing. It sure is. It's so amazing. I mean, did you find these with your cosmic peepers? It says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew, make new... Their human strength, the power of the strength of the Lord in their life, uh-huh. the strength and activation of angels. Yeah, the, by the way, this is this, the, the technique that she's employing at this moment is entitled Eisegesis. That's what this is called. Thank you. for Just so I want to let you all know that today's episode of Fighting for the Faith has been brought to you by Schoolhouse Rock and Conjunction Junction, What's Your Function, as well as um, <laughs> the word Eisegesis. Eisegesis meaning into, reading into. Yeah, she's reading stuff into it. Really, I didn't see anything about angels, money, or anything like that in that half verse that she quoted, but she's just reading it right into there. And the strength of your prosperity. Oh my gosh, it's it's, it's massive. Yeah, this is massive eisegesis, all right. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Then it says, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. Now, when eagles mount up, what they do is they actually just spread their wings uh-huh. and the wind comes up under. So eagles do not flap their wings. Yeah, weird. I've seen video of eagles flapping their wings. They just spread them and lock them. 
that's all they do. Yeah. And then the wind carries them up high, 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 and they actually go up above the storms of life. It's just awesome. And it says they shall run and not be weary. Now, the word run means to move swiftly and quickly. Right. Yeah, that's what it means. Oh, wait, you said the word swift. Oh, oh, oh. How many of you would like to have accelerated uh, movement in your life? Accelerated. So it's not that I'm just going to have renewed energy. I'm going to have swiftierness (laughs) with my renewed energy. Projects brought to completion. Um, Being able to run forth with with renewed strength to accomplish the things of God speedily. I remember we had this angel show up. Yeah, okay, please tell us. uh, In our lives many years ago called Swift. Did he stay the weekend at your house? The angel's name was Swift. And it was actually um, an angel in the form of an eagle. It was like a brown eagle with gold on it. But ever since... So did he eat dead fish? That angel showed up. Everything's been accelerated ever since that time. Yeah, see, because, you know, that's, see, there you go. You got an angel showing up looking like an eagle. Well, you're just going to mount up and just go swiftly. It makes perfect sense. But it says in this promise that you can move swiftly and quickly yeah. into the promises of God. So it says, <laughs> oh, man. You will run. You will run. You yeah, shall run, run swiftly. Yes. When you wait upon the Lord. Not only shall you gain, regain, renew your strength, right? But you shall mount up with wings like eagles, and you will run into your projects with swiftness. Now I thought eagles flew. I didn't think they ran. And it says, and you will not be weary. And that word weary there mm-hmm. means to grow weary through toil or labor. Yeah. In other words, when you accomplish the things of God, you'll accomplish the things of God. With grace and in the peace of God, it'll be just easy. It won't be through striving, through struggling, through heavy toil or labor. It'll just be easy. Oh, I love this. (laughs) I'm sure you do. I mean, wow. I mean, I've never seen the the English, well, not English. I've never seen language twisted so much. Wow. I mean, it's like discovering that the Bible is made out of Play-Doh and you can turn it into any little animal that you, that your, that your heart desires. It's, it's just amazing. This is called creative fun time with words. So you will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not faint. Now the word walk means to go, to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I'm aware of what walking means. It's the way that you live and your manner of life. And so as you move Okay, so walking doesn't mean just walking. Now it's referring to the manner of your entire life. Okay. Forward, as you live, as you display your manner of life, you won't faint. And you know what that means? You will not be fatigued. Right on. Yeah, so I could hardly wait for this. No fatigue. Now, I think that there's someone watching this who has chronic fatigue syndrome. And now for the psychic reading. Uh, she knows that there's somebody watching this who has... If, uh, if, now, if this is you, I mean, this is a public service that we're performing here for you uh, here at Fighting for the Faith. If this is you, if you're suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome through the powers of eisegesis and uh, the uh, the conjunction but, we're now able to offer to you a complete uh, renewing of strength and peace and swiftiness. 
as a result of this fine, fine example of bad biblical hermeneutics and eisegesis. I declare over you that you're going to move forward in your life. With oh, no. She's declaring it. With everything that you have to do to live your manner of life in the goodness of God without fatigue. The fatigue is going now in the name of Jesus. We can move through life even to the very end of our days without being fatigued. Oh, wow. Who knew? We can have every single day, as our days are, shall so our strength be. I can do everything in a day and not be fatigued. So let's read it again. No, let's, let's not. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> this is crazy making. I just, you watch enough of that stuff and your brain's going to rot out of your head. Anyway, um, uh, we're up on our first uh, uh, break. Um. If, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. I got three favorite cars that get most of my job done. Conjunction, junction, what's their function? I got and button or they'll get you pretty It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. reach the voicemail box for Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm, I'm trying to uh, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. That I, I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. The world is so complicated. You know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you could make one of your really fancy videos and... Tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name. I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and uh, one more thing. You might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. I, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. 
Hey, everyone, this word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name, and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. Come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me. Give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty, mighty adventure. That adventurous heart that you have, the Lord is going to really, really reach in and he's going to satisfy that heart in you. And it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day. So, Vincent, come to the Lord. Wait no longer. Vacillate between two opinions no longer. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning. Yeah, words have meanings. Yeah, you need to you know, pay attention when people are just throwing out de dictionary definitions but not telling you what the definition is in that context. Uh, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, from the James McDonald blog, the uh, blog post reads, Elephant Room, Not for the Faint of Heart. Okay, now we're going to cover the controversy here and uh, kind of walk you through it blow by blow so that you can see what's going on here because there's an important uh, issue at stake and that has to do with, well, 
the meaning of words. The meaning of words. Okay, so uh, if, uh, James McDonald of, uh, of Harvest Bible Chapel uh, out there in the greater Chicagoland area writes, he says, what does it take to knock you down? Uh, a little pushback, a wave of criticism, a few of those you considered friends turning on you? Well, we find out how committed we are to a particular priority by what it takes to get us off mission. And, by God's grace, we are staying on mission in the elephant room. We have been slandered. We've been misquoted. We've been maligned, and, and so have my motives. I have contacted privately some of those who did so, only to find their tone change drastically when we talk personally. By the way, I did talk with James McDonald. I talked to him privately, and we, we had a very cordial conversation. I thought it went well. Anyway, it says, it was hard to miss the more reasonable and measured exchange in direct conversation versus the anger and misinformation in the public smackdown. Perfect. Just more proof of the vitriol we are all capable as as Christ followers when we avoid direct communication and more motivation for our team to pursue this worthy goal. The goal is open conversation between Christian leaders who see and do ministry differently. Not just people who disagree about little things, but major rifts of separation among those who profess Christ. Not silly conversations of near agreement between people trapped in the backwater of their own sectarianism. Backwater of sectarianism. Do you, th- you think that's a phrase that has some rhetorical vitriol to it? Anyway, <clears throat> sorry, I just digress here. But real conversations out in the wide open of biblical belief where the white caps are everywhere and some waves threaten to swamp the boat. Here, among the broad, uh, the broadest possible understanding of Christ's body, we find opportunity to express with graciousness that we actually believe and hear others do the same. Here we have a chance to exhort and explain why some issues are worth dying for and can't simply be a point of divergent opinion. What are you afraid of? Are we going to talk about tough subjects that needlessly separate and maybe some subjects that must separate? Most importantly, we are attempting to model an ethic of behavior and expression of love that adorns the gospel. Some people seem content to point to truth as the final or even only expression of gospel behavior, but it is that what the Bible but is that what the Bible teaches? Are we without responsibility to those beyond our self-imposed boundaries? Before you lower your gun at a wolf, don't you want to get close enough to make sure you're not shooting a brother? Gospel belief without gospel behavior is not orthodoxy. Okay, so that's what he wrote. Here's the video that he posted along with the blog post. Now listen carefully to his words. Pay close attention to the word brother. Hey, I'm James McDonald, and I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited about January 25th, 2012, Elephant Room 2, all right? We're going to be getting some brothers together. We're going to be talking about the issues that separate us, men that believe the Word of God, men that preach the gospel, but do things a lot differently and believe differently, or what do they exactly believe? Not talking about them, talking to them face-to-face. Not afraid, not hiding, not crouching behind walls of disagreement, but coming together like brothers do. Sparks will fly. It's all good, but we're going to talk face-to-face. We're going to act like men. We're going to act like brothers, all right? We need a 
lot more of that in the body of Christ. You know, over here we have all the ecumenical doctrine, doesn't matter. Can't we all get along holding hands, singing kumbaya? Gag. Over here we've got, I hate everyone, I hate everything. Just a couple of people crouching together, knee to knee. You're awesome. You are too. Why don't we come and talk, all right? The body of Christ is a big place. I've been reading some of the comments people have been writing on my blog. Yeah, why don't you talk about the real elephant room, man? Here's the real elephant in the room. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, declared that by this all would know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. So it's time to express our love to one another and come together in real conversation, face to face. We're going to hash it out. We're going to act like brothers. The Elephant Room, January 25th, 2012. We'll see you there. Okay, so that was James McDonald, and uh, well, well, got a problem here. Um, yeah, uh, the way he's using the word brother, and uh, since T.D. Jakes is going to be in the elephant room too, um, what exactly is he talking about? I, I mean, are we to think of that he thinks that um, uh, T.D. Jakes is a Christian brother? What is going on here? Well, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog, Phil Johnson, who works for John MacArthur's um, Grace to You Ministries, um, he took note of uh, James McDonald's video and blog, and uh, he wrote a counterblog. His counterblog is entitled, Not for the Sound of Heart Either, Apparently. Um, so he's, here we go. He says, there's a distinct change in volume, tone, an attitude between James McDonald's humble pie blog post and yesterday's not for the vein of heart addendum. In the earlier post, McDonald acknowledged his own inconsistency. He knew he should not have used strong language to scold others for being harsh in their criticism of the elephant room strategy, but in yesterday's post and video, McDonald casts off restraint and reverts to angry sounding rhetoric. Despite their snarky, contrasting styles, both statements have one thing in common. McDonald wishes those with concerns about what he is doing would just, well, shut up. He says it euphemistically, quote, We are asking that those interested in what we are doing allow the conversations to take place before making final conclusions about their wisdom or helpfulness. But clearly that plea applies to critics, not to McDonald himself or to those who support a strategy. There are multiple layers of irony in that. McDonald purports to be championing fearless dialogue with people he says he doesn't necessarily agree with, but there is a distinct and clearly discernible direction to the drift of the dialogue. It is painfully obvious that McDonald is not so keen to listen and learn when someone more conservative than he wants to share a perspective. But let's set all that aside. What troubled me most, uh, much more, about the video McDonald posted yesterday was he repeatedly insisted from beginning to end that the participants of the Elephant Room 2 are a true band of spiritual brothers. In the earlier Humble Pie blog post, McDonald had expressed regret that the purpose of the elephant room was not expanded and explained before including a greater breadth of participants. I took that as an admission that he had come to realize why so many people thought it inappropriate to invite 
a non-Trinitarian to into a discussion that was being advertised as a conversation between brothers in Christ who are all committed to the same Christ and the same gospel. See, when MacDonald announced the Jake's invitation, he wrote, quote, getting brothers together who believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone but normally don't interact is what the elephant room is all about. That assertion was doubtless the main reason for the force of the backlash against Jake's involvement. At the very least, concern over MacDonald's blithe embrace of a non-Trinitarian as a brother was the dominant theme in the criticisms posted on MacDonald's blog. So... The ER purpose statement was quickly modified to include the phrase, quote, conversation among all kinds of leaders. That, I assumed, was what McDonald was talking about when he mentioned the expansion of the purpose statement to accommodate a greater breadth of participants. But in the above video, he repeatedly insists in rather dogmatic terms and with a emphatic tone that all ER, or Elephant Room participants, are indeed his brothers. That, I think, is why McDonald and the ER, the Elephant Room, pose a major problem for the Gospel Coalition. He is a council member of the Gospel Coalition and an influential spokesman for the movement. And the first point in the Gospel Coalition's confessional statement is the triune God. So is biblical and historic Trinitarianism an essential tenet of gospel truth, or is it not? If yes, then the gospel coalition needs to hold its own council members to the implications of that. If not, one wonders what was the point of the organization in the first place, or to put it another way, the collective leadership of the Gospel Coalition are going to have to decide which is more important, the Gospel or the Coalition. So that was Phil Johnson's response. Okay, so here, so here we've got uh, we've got this thing going on here. Okay, um, you know, James McDonald has well, kind of gone on the counterattack, if you would. And, you know, and lashed out at the critics. And did he miss the point? Did he, does he not get the, that uh, T.D. Jakes, a modalist, a man who, when questioned directly about the doctrine of the Trinity just a year ago, um, well, he, he waffled more than a Denny's breakfast? Um, and maybe that doesn't work, but it, you get what I'm saying here. So, okay, so that you got McDonald. Uh, Phil Johnson responds, and well, in this particular case, uh, James McDonald will now have the last word. And watch what happens in this post. And what I want you to pay close attention to is how he blurs the definition of the word brother. It's very much akin to what we heard Patricia King doing with Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. I mean, she was eisegeting all kinds of stuff, and the way she was pulling it off was basically saying, well, here's the definition of the word, and she gives every single definition in the known uh, dictionary for a particular word and doesn't tell you what which, which definition applies in that context in order to just pour all kinds of meaning into it. Odd here, but um, James McDonald uses the same technique. Watch this. 
<clears throat> James McDonald writes today on his blog, Who is my brother? That's the name of the post. When Jesus asked the question, Who are my brothers? He answered that his birth brothers were not his brothers, but his disciples were. Uh, the term is used in many ways in Scripture, and in our days, it's important that we understand how brother is being used when seeking to understand a brother. The word brother in describing close relationship was not originally coined by Christ or the early church. Jews of the time commonly referred to one another as brethren. This familiar pattern, familial pattern of referring to others as brothers continued with the apostles as may be seen in Acts chapter 2 verse 29, chapter 3 verse 17, chapter 7 verse 2, chapter 13 verse 26, 22 verse 1, 23 verse 1, etc. In these passages, Peter, Stephen, and Paul all use the term to describe those who share the same nation and clearly not the same belief about Christ. Later in the New Testament, we see that this word Adelphos in the Greek was used by the authors of Scripture to include all who professed faith in Christ, such as when Paul appealed to the entire Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, some of those whose salvation was surely in question. Paul even used the word um, pseudadelphos, false brother, in reference to Jewish brothers who pretended to be Christian brothers, i.e. the Judaizers. Uh, see the rebuke in chapter uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. The term is also used frequently in a most reverent way to describe our relationship with Christ, who is not ashamed to call them brothers, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 10, and Christ himself as the firstborn among many Brothers, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Apparently, we're just going to throw out every possible instance we can concoct here or find or locate regarding how the word brother is used in Scripture, Adelphos. Okay. So, he then transitions to our into our day. He, uh, McDonald writes this, is, in our day, hey, bro, is frequently used as a greeting between those who are not blood relatives but who seek to relate in a personal way with no reference to their faith. The term brother is also used today to describe a manner of relating, such as in the popular one-liner from Jack Handy, instead of giving answers on a math test, I think we should all just give impressions. That way, if you have a different impression than me, well, can't we all be brothers? Here... <laughs> I can't believe this is his response. Okay, so here the idea is that we should treat each other as brothers would. Context determines how the term is being used, and brothers are careful to make sure they don't make a brother mean what he does not. I grew up... <laughs> I Oh, man, it's unbelievable. Yeah, He's right, yes, context determines what it means, but see, here's the deal. You've thrown all the definitions out, and in your... Um, Video, you clearly referred to everybody there as brothers, and that's in the context of a man who's a Christian pastor who's getting a bunch of Christian leaders together to discuss things, and one of them happens to deny the doctrine of the Trinity, or at least refuses to clearly affirm it. Let's just put it that way. Anyway, so he says, all right, so he says, I grew up with three brothers, no sisters. One of my brothers knifed me in the leg by accident when we were young. I broke another of my brothers' nose in a teenage argument, relating as brothers, we take nothing from each other and do everything for each other. It's a beautiful thing. I still occasionally argue and debate with those birth brothers, but always in the context of committed, enduring relationships and a quick need to reconcile where words, actions have separated. 
When brothers act like brothers, political correctness is out and the truth is spoken without fear or filter with the goal of advancing understanding and relationship. While where agreement is not possible, time inevitably brings us back into relationship. I love the Gospel Coalition because I experience that kind of brotherly interaction and accountability. Boy, he's just blurring the definition of the word brother like you wouldn't believe. All right, so... In the elephant room, we are gathering those who are brothers in the national sense, (laughs) oh man, and profess to be brothers in the gospel sense, to act like brothers in the relational sense. When I say my goal is that we would act like brothers, it includes the following. (laughs) One, really hearing each other, not just words, but intent. Brothers seek agreement where possible and are not twisting each other's words or jumping to the worst conclusions. Two, not holding back. Brothers will not withhold truth and manufacture agreement to keep the peace. Brothers have no fear, so they speak their minds with directness. Clarity over carefulness. Brothers know that relationship will continue at the highest possible level, but they don't measure their words the way you would if you sat with a stranger or an acquaintance. Believing the best, brothers are loyal and wait to hear from the horse's mouth before forming judgment. Slow to condemn. Brothers are slow to condemn one another and do the very and do that so very reluctantly, only with the greatest of current evidence regarding issues of greatest importance. Behold, Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, national, relational, and gospel. Amos chapter 3, verse 3, Can two walk together unless they are agreed in the end? No. Please continue in prayer for us that our pursuit of this worthy goal would be not deterred. Brotherhood, to the extent it proves possible, is a worthy biblical goal we will pursue with God's help. So here's the deal. Um, this is an example of, I, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but it really, really sounds like complete postmodern obfuscation. We're going to basically throw every definition possible of the word brother out there, mix and match different definitions in order to avoid the obvious. Okay, Let, let's just work this out. I have no problem whatsoever whatsoever agreeing that if you were to look up the word brother in the dictionary or the word adelphos in a uh, in a greek lexicon that you would come up with multiple meanings and it depends on the context as to which one is being used there that being the case let me point something out that's kind of obvious um when i meet a fellow citizen of the united states while walking in the mall, shopping with my wife, which is something we don't really do that much of. Thankfully, I'm married to a woman who doesn't enjoy mall shopping very much. And I know some of you women out there are just, you just went, <gasps> I understand that, but I'm I'm blessed this way. So anyway, but when I went on occasions that my wife and I pack up, go you know, get in the pirate Christian radio mobile and go down to our local mall and we do window shopping and I come across somebody that I you know want to strike up a conversation with who happens to be a male and a fellow citizen of the United States, I never begin the conversation by saying, what's up, bro? I never refer to fellow citizens of the United States as brothers. Um... Yeah, that just doesn't happen. Um, I reserve the word brother for two instances. 
One is my my blood brothers. I got two of them. Okay, one lives in uh, in Sitka, Alaska. The other lives in Florida. Okay, so I got I got two blood brothers. And so when I talk to my bro, I when I talk to my brother, my uh, my younger brother in uh, Florida, I will say to him, "Hey, bro, what's up?" We say the word bro because well, he happens to be my bro. Okay, now. That being the case, I also consider a second group of people to be my brothers, okay? And that would be those people who are my fellow Christians who are men. Now, I do consider Christian women to be my sisters in Christ, okay? That being the case, when I refer to so-and-so as my Christian brother, I am saying that I believe that person to be a Christian, that they have been brought to repentance of their sins and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and that the God that we believe in is the same God, that he affirms the doctrine of the Trinity, that he affirms that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. You you get what I'm saying here, okay? That he's not worshiping and believing in a false God, that he's not a modalist or an Arian or a a Sabalian. You get what I'm saying. So... I reserve the I only use the term commonly in two instances one referring to a blood relative who is a male uh who is a male brother or somebody who is a Christian in the body of Christ I never refer to fellow citizens of the United States as my brothers okay it just it never even it just doesn't happen okay Especially doesn't happen in well white nerdy culture, okay? In uh, which seems to be the culture that I hang out in. It just doesn't happen. We we don't roll that way. So um, so here's the deal. James McDonald by th- by throwing in the definition of brother to, and expanding it to uh, to imply that well we're, we're we're brothers in the national sense. Um. Wow, um, that's a stretch. It really, truly is a stretch. What's wrong with this approach, James? I hear my critics. In light of the fact that T.D. Jakes has really affirmed modalism on his website, modalism in his books, modalism in public, and even last year when questioned about the doctrine of the Trinity and the nature of the Godhead, really didn't answer the question, and his answer really still fit within the definition of modalism. It's not safe to refer to him as my Christian brother, and I need to make the caveat there that I'm being gracious to a guest whom I've invited to the elephant room but if he doesn't truly affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, I by no means am saying that he's my Christian brother. And I'm sorry for the confusion. Please forgive me. That would be a great way of approaching this. Instead, he's dug in his heels, and now we he's thrown every possible definition of the word brother out onto the table and basically said that oh, I'm talking about he's a brother in the national sense. 
Yeah, I don't know in the United States that brother in the national sense is really ever something that happens. So um, at this point, I think that this is a stretch. It's obfuscation. It's It's basically you're blurring the definitions in order to cover up the obvious. The right thing to do instead is to just say, I blew it. And ask to be forgiven. That's what Christians do. They confess their sins one to another. And here's the deal. I sin daily, and I sin much. And I'm sure James McDonald sins daily and sins much. Sometimes those sins are public. And when they are, the right thing to do is confess, say you were wrong, and ask for forgiveness. That's the Christian thing to do rather than engaging in postmodern obfuscation and throwing every definition out and basically you know waffling here cutting this there and and basically engaging in a smokescreen TD Jakes until he firmly affirms a clear trinitarian formula regarding the godhead and as a result of it denies Modalism as being Christian, he's not our Christian brother, plain and simple. And saying that he's my brother nationally, that's silly. That's just not a common thing. And he's definitely not my brother, well, by blood, okay? I've only got two brothers, two of them, okay? And T.D. Jakes, last time I checked my family and photo albums, he's not one of my blood relatives, that being the case, um, that leaves the only other definition that makes any sense, the one that he's kept using there, which is wrong for him to do, especially when it's not publicly clear at all that T.D. Jakes affirms the doctrine of the Trinity. <sighs> anyway, all right, so we're up on our second break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to listen to a fantastic lecture by Dr. Albert Muller, on the hymns of Doctor of of Doctor uh, Martin Luther, and this it, is it just it's just brilliant. Anyway, all right. If you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, uh, you can you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate christian. We'll be right back. Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Oh, boys. 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Um, sermon review time. It's not a sermon, it's a lecture. And um, it's just brilliant. And I will not interrupt this. No way, Jose. Again, it'd be like me trying to add brush strokes to it, you know, like a you know, Michelangelo painting. That just doesn't make any sense. Cue up our music, and we'll talk about what we're talking about here. Review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's lecture, it's not a sermon, comes to us via, I think, 10th Avenue uh, Presbyterian Church. And uh, this is a um, lecture delivered by Dr. Albert Muller on Reformation Day. The name of the lecture is Satan Cannot Sing. Oh, man. It, and it's just amazing. Now, here's the deal. I'm not going to interrupt it. I've told you I'm not going to interrupt it because, yeah, that it's that's silly. I doesn't, I'm not going to do that. Let me kill the music. But that being the case, I'm not going to interrupt it. I'm, at the end of it, I'm going to circle back and make a point, kind of reiterate or highlight a point that he made, okay? Kind of circle it and, you know, and point it out and drive home a point. Not because he doesn't do it brilliantly, but because, you know, I think that I would like to just add that little bit of a reiteration. But as you're listening to this lecture, he's talking about the hymns that uh, of Martin Luther. And more importantly, the theology behind Martin Luther's reason for writing these hymns. And um, it you, you just need to hear it. Okay, now... In light, this is what I want you to keep kind of framed in the front of your head. As you're listening to this, ask yourself this question. Can today's 7-Eleven mystical praise and, praise and worship songs that are supposed to give you some kind of a subjective experience of God, can they do 
what Dr. Muller points out that Walt, uh, that Martin Luther's hymns do. Pay close attention to the stewardess and what she says about the hymns of Martin Luther and what they helped her family get through. And ask yourself this question. Could a modern praise and worship 7-Eleven praise song do that? So without any further ado, here is Dr. Albert Muller, my brother in Jesus Christ, and his lecture, Satan Cannot Sing. It is a great privilege to be here and for us to be gathered here for this particular occasion on this Sunday of Reformation Day to delight in a history in a festival of hymns. And I have to say, as a visiting Baptist, if you will allow me, there is only one thing lacking thus far in terms of the appropriate nature of this observation, and that is you're looking a bit too Presbyterian at the moment. You, you need to have a good bit of Lutheran joy for just a moment. As we shall see, we should let the joy shine on our faces as we sing these words and sing them to each other and sing them with the saints and hurl, it, hurl them like arrows at the devil. My favorite moment thus far was where this began in the pre-service music with those little children singing, a hymn written by Luther for children. Luther wanted children to fight to find delight in singing such songs. He wanted children to learn the great truths and doctrines of the Christian faith by singing such songs. No doubt as a parent, he wanted parents to exult in seeing their children sing such songs. And he wanted the devil to grind his teeth and to hate every note and every voice and every moment. I would invite you to turn with me in the book of Romans to Romans chapter 3. We read together Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I find great delight in the fact that we are considering, as we are gathered here for this hymn festival, the contributions of Martin Luther, the great reformer, to the hymnody of the Christian church. I think Luther would find some comfort and encouragement in the fact that he would know that the saints would be singing his hymns 
nearly a half a millennium after he left them to us. On the other hand, it was Luther who believed that hymns become the property of the church. That is, the saints sing the hymns together. They, as he said, are no longer Augustine's hymns nor Christus's hymns. They, they are no longer Luther's hymns, he said, I dare say. They are now the church's hymns because we sing them together. This is our testimony. This is indeed our song. It's appropriate that a church would take such an opportunity as this. And it's appropriate that we turn tonight to Luther as in this Reformation Day we look back to that reformer who among the magisterial reformers of the 16th century was the one who left us the greatest legacy when it comes to the hymn. Of course, it's easy to turn to Luther, isn't it? Because Luther is larger than life. Luther's one of those characters on the world stage who covers just about every conceivable angle of review. And every single aspect of Luther is interesting. Luther is larger than life, and the great surprise in all of that is that we're talking about the son of a miner in the heavily forested rural area of Germany. It's nothing less than remarkable that tonight we are invoking his name and that we are doing so in a way that brings glory to God as we are thankful for the gift he was to the church. Now, why is Luther of interest to us? Well, first of all, let's consider Luther in his times. When you put Luther in his time there in the 16th century, born in the late 15th century and living through almost to the midpoint of the 16th century, he was living at one of those historical intersections that is so important to us in history, the intersection between the late medieval world and the dawning modern world. You can consider Luther a man with one foot in both worlds. He is still a medieval man. He talks like a medieval man. He has the concerns of a medieval man. His world picture is that of the medieval age. But at the same time, he is not only one who is moving into the modern age as it is dawning, he is one of the agents, as even secular historians have recognized, for, for moving Western civilization into a different stage of existence and different period of history, a modern age. Luther is of importance to us because not only of his times, but because of his life. And, and by the way, Luther, in terms of his contribution, the, the Reformation, in terms of, of, its, of its project, it, it, it is explainable in the providence of God by the fact that, that God raised up these men, such as Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others, at such a time that, for instance, there was the invention shortly before their arrival on the world stage of a printing press. And, and thus their ideas could be disseminated. And, and of a rising middle class, Luther's father, by the way, had very middle class expectations of young Mr. Luther. He wanted Luther to get a good education so that he could become a lawyer, so that in his lawyerly wealth he could support his parents. That was relatively new on the world stage for, for someone from that socioeconomic class to have the aspiration that his son could become a professional in terms of the, the city life of, of early modern Germany. But as you'll recall, Luther did not become a lawyer even though he had the requisite training and background because it was on that day when young Luther was on horseback and a severe thunderstorm came and a bolt of lightning struck so close to him that he was afraid he would die and he was thrown to the ground and he made an immediate prayer to St. Anne. If he survived, he would enter a monastery. Better be careful what kind of prayers and oaths you offer in a sudden storm. But Luther was faithful to that oath and indeed he entered the Augustinian monastery and his main purpose in life was to become a faithful Augustinian monk. 
Luther gave himself to the task and to the trials of being a monk to such an extent that he said, if any monk could ever be saved by his monkery, it was I. How is it that this son of a minor would become the reformer who would stare down the papacy and would in person stare down the Holy Roman Emperor? How is it that this one who came from such humble background would, would stand before the Diet of Worms to declare, here I stand, I can do none other, God help me? Well, you know, a life like that is a life that will be instructive to us and of interest to us. And biographies of Luther abound, historical studies abound. Luther is one of the most fascinating figures from Christian history. And most Christians, especially most Protestants and particularly most evangelicals, feel that they know something about Luther. And yet what is missing from their knowledge about Luther, by and large, is Luther's contribution to music and Luther's specific contribution to Christian hymnody. One of the reasons we like to talk about Luther is because we know a great deal of his life. He reminds me in this sense of a very large, on the world scale, 20th century personality, that of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, again, is one of those figures that is fascinating from every conceivable angle. And we happen to have just about everything, it seems, that Winston Churchill ever said. He happened to be one of the most quotable men of, the, of any time, much less of the 20th century, and around Winston Churchill, there is an entire mythology of what he said and what people think he said, very similarly with Luther. Churchill was once asked if he thought that history would treat him well. He said, of course. The one who asked him the question turned back and said, how can you be so sure that history is going to treat you well? He said, that's very easy. I'm going to write it. <laughs> and as you know, he did. Luther did not write the history, but it was written around him. And Luther had students and others who were so closely associated with him and that he drew so generously into his domestic life that we have of Luther what we have of no other personage of this era, much less any other reformer. We have what is called even his table talk, his tishrated. We have the small talk of Martin Luther at dinner with his family and his friends because it was in that setting that, for instance, we come to understand the Luther, who's not just the Luther who thunders from the pulpit and not just the Luther who nails the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door, in 1517, and, and not just the Luther who stares down the Holy Roman Emperor at the Diet of Worms, but the Luther who would sit back with his students and with his family and would answer the questions that his students peppered him with. I happen to have an incredible admiration for Luther as a seminary president. I am one. Luther was one. I find tremendous encouragement from Luther. Luther knew how to deal with students. At one point, he was answering questions in what amounted to a theological free-for-all. Luther invited students to ask whatever question they wanted to ask. And one of the students, thinking that he might trap Martin Luther in something that Luther did not know, leaned back and said, Father Martin, what was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? Luther looked at him and said, that's quite simple. He was creating hell for impetuous theology students. Now, how can you not like someone who lives like that? As one historian said, Luther never had an unarticulated thought. You can only imagine what he was like as a little boy. He said everything he thought. And 
it turned out that most of what he said and most of what he thought someone considered worth writing down. We know a great deal about Luther because he takes us into his life, into his family life. Here was a monk who never expected to marry, much less have children. By the way, when he did write about having children before he had any, by the way, that's something that is dangerous to write about what you would do if you had children when you do not have any. He wrote that he would require of them a fine education, including an education in music. Luther became a husband. That was very unexpected. Uh, that was part of the Reformation when he came to understand that, that the Pope's decree that, that priests should be celibate was, he saw, actually not only something that was unbiblical in terms of lacking biblical warrant, it was against the very will and command of God. And, and it was against the very teachings of the New Testament. And so Luther got a nun. And to his students he commended, go get you a nun and get you one you want to hug. Luther recovered a very joyous sense of holy matrimony. Luther had a wonderful family life, a family life like so many in the medieval age that was filled with great happiness and also with tragedy as children died and as there was literally the knowledge at every moment of the thin tissue, as Jonathan Edwards would later say, between life and death. We know a great deal of Luther because of his massive writings. The official Weimar edition of the translation into English of Luther is now headed towards 75 volumes. Volumes of sermons, volumes of, of scriptural commentary, volumes of theological treatises, many of them meted out in the hammer of experience and expediency. Many of them written not only with incredible conviction, but, but with necessary urgency, as the Reformation was not a theoretical project. It was a life-or-death matter that was even then be, being negotiated and led and, and figured out as day by day the Reformers in their various places of Reformation, especially in, in the great cities where the Reformation was born and where it progressed, they were trying to figure out on the basis of the Word of God how it is that the church should believe and teach and worship and order its life. Luther's theological impact is massive. As a matter of fact, when you look at the theological impact of those who have had the most decisive influence throughout the history of the Christian church, there would be only a limited number of persons who can be said truthfully to have theologically influenced the entire church, virtually wherever the church is to be found. And Martin Luther is one of those. Martin Luther had tremendous influence on the Catholic Church. Even after the Reformation led to the Great Schism, Luther still has a massive influence on the Catholic Church, even when, as Catholicism hardened its doctrines in response to the Reformation, they had to react to, if only to reject, many of Luther's teachings. Luther's place in history is not only secure, it's fascinating but many who understand his contributions to theology, many who understand his courage in terms of the leadership of the Reformation, many who understand the warmth of his personality and his pastoral devotion, fail to understand his contributions to church music and to worship. Between the years of 1523 and 1543, in those two decades, Luther wrote no less than 37 hymns. He wrote 21 hymns, we think, in the year 1524, along with Johannes Walter, who was his young associate. His hymnal 
which is often referred to by the title Sacred Songs, and it's Final edition, in in terms of the 16th century, included 101 hymns, 35 of them by Luther himself. Where did Luther get this love of music? Well, he got it, first of all, from the culture that was around him. One of the things we need to recognize tonight, as we hear in October of the year 2011, is that music is for us a very different thing, a very different reality than it was not only for the medievals, but for just about anyone who came before us. Music was, for most human beings throughout history, a communal activity and a communal experience. You did not find Martin Luther walking around with two white lines coming down from his ears with a little white box hidden somewhere in his cowl. No. We live in a strange time in which music has been commodified and and, and music has been digitalized and music has become, well, all too frighteningly, an entirely solitary experience. In the dark, otherwise quiet space of medieval Europe, music was entertainment, music was communication, music was accessible culture. Luther heard music, first of all, from his own parents, especially, as he would say later, from his mother. And in many cases, as mothers are the first teachers of so many things, mothers are the first teachers of music. But Luther did not just have the background of that domestic experience of music. He also had a very traditional, if if very sound, education in, first of all, the Latin school he attended as a young boy, beginning at probably about the age of seven, where he learned the trivium, the ancient uh, triad of, of, of the disciplines that he would learn in terms of the Latin school to prepare him for the quadrivium that would follow in order that the three would be added to the four, and by the time he would enter university, he would have the seven liberal arts. In the context of that education, he had a very privileged exposure to music. Martin Luther, by the time he was a young man, was a skilled singer. And like virtually all of the boys who in his generation and time would have been educated, he was able not only to read notes and music, but to have some skill in composition as well. Luther, we are told, was a very skilled player of the lute. And thus he was an instrumentalist as well. And as for his voice, he claimed himself to be a tenor. But many of those who observed him noted that he often sang the alto part. He had a very high voice, which is interesting when you consider how he thundered in terms of what he said with that voice. When we come to understand Luther and music, we need to understand that family life was not conceivable without music. Communal life was inconceivable without music. National life was inconceivable without music. And this music required that virtually everyone be able to sing and and find great joy in that singing. Someone from that age walking into our epoch would be absolutely shocked at how most of us are merely observers of those who sing and those who play, rather than joining in the merriment and in the meaning-making of that endeavor. Luther, we know, enjoyed music after virtually every meal of the evening. When he had dinner, 
and dinner, by the way, in this era was, was rather late because they, they worked as long as they could while it was day. As Jesus says in John 9, night is coming when no man can work. They, they used all the light that they could, and then they went in and they had the, the, the fellowship of the table. And, and then the fellowship of the table during the medieval age, by the way, especially in this particular class, could be a pretty chaotic thing. You, you would have the food being brought. You would have family members. You would have in Luther's house students. You would have children running around, and Luther exulted in the sheer chaos of all of this. He, he loved the children running around. He, did not, he was not the kind of father who wanted his children far away from him. Luther hammered out his theology with little ones crawling on his lap and, 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 and being fed there at the table and making noise and doing everything that little children do. It's one of the reasons we love Luther. Uh, in, the, in the course of preparing for my remarks tonight, I was, I was made aware of a project that I want to undertake about Luther with children. Because not only did Luther write music for children, and was he such a, a happy father, but he was very concerned with the devotion of children. I came across an, a time when his son Hans came to Luther and, and expressed at about age seven difficulty in prayer. And, and Luther said, what is your difficulty, son? And he said, I don't know what to say, Papa. And Luther said, well, why do you not know what to say? And he said, Papa, I'm small. And Luther said, well, that's how you pray then. You say, oh, my great God, I am Hans, and I am small. How can you not love that? And how can you not love a man who would then write songs, hymns, for the little people, so that they would both learn the faith and defy the devil, even as they sang them? In the Reformation, music was a big question. It was a necessary question because of the reformation of worship in the 16th century. As the reformers were going through their, the different aspects of church life, worship was first and foremost. How is it that worship must be reformed according to the word? There were huge questions here. How is it that worship, a true evangelical worship, truly reformed worship can take place where the preaching of the word, which is the first mark of the church, is unconditionally preeminent? Now, it was not in the Catholic Mass. And, and that was the problem. Then what from the Mass can be retained without detracting from the Gospel and the Word? Well, the Reformers came to some different conclusions. Zwingli, for instance, in Zurich simply said, almost no music. Calvin affirmed the Psalter, but rejected what he called art music. He wanted skilled musicians to, to write the Psalter, but he was very concerned about art music, lest it detract and become itself an idolatrous artifice. The Anabaptists, you won't be surprised, were more radical, largely just dismissing with it altogether. Luther, at different periods of his life, in terms of the early period of the Reformation, was clearly not exactly sure what to do, but he was convinced of this. There is the consistent understanding in Luther that there needed to be a German evangelical mass. German, there he meant by the vernacular. It's going to be in the German. It's not going to be in the Latin. One of the most important issues of Christian worship is intelligibility. Not only is the sermon to be intelligible and in the vernacular, in the language of the people, but the scripture must be translated into the vernacular and into the understanding of the people. It is not 
to be that the, only the priests who are, who are behind the veil have an understanding of the words of institution and, and, and of the words uh, of Scripture. Rather, it is to be the entire church, the entire people of God who hear and who understand in their own language the great content of the Christian faith. And when it came to music, Luther was convinced of several things. Number one, Luther was convinced that music must continue in the German worship, in the Reformed worship, because it is God's gift. Luther was absolutely convinced that music must continue in the worship, but it must continue in the vernacular, and it must continue in a way that is appropriate, not taking away anything from the, the act and centrality of preaching, but rather contributing what music can contribute in terms of, as Luther was very clear, the hymn functioning to teach, to encourage, to associate with the communion of the saints, to build the fellowship of the church, to assault the devil, and even to evangelize by means of song. Now Luther hammered out again his understanding of these things in the red-hot heat of the Reformation. He did so not just in terms of theory, although Luther was so skilled in music that he had a very sound theoretical understanding of such things. Luther, for instance, is credited as one very important figure in the history not only of the church but of Western music in, in shifting the understanding of music from the speculative nature of music as an art it was, as it was conceived by so many in the medieval era where, where music was in many ways considered to be a subset of mathematics to being a practical discipline that was very much a part of the life of the culture. Luther never wrote a treatise on music. Now, about 1520, in another writing, he intimated that one day he wanted to write a great treatise on music. We do not have that. But we do have a couple of things that Luther left behind. First of all, Luther wrote a poem entitled Frau Musica, or Lady Music, in which he spoke in an almost secular sense in terms of poetic expression of his appreciation for music. More importantly, in the last decade of his life, he wrote a preface to a major work on music in which, in that preface, he declared the reasons why music in general and hymns specifically are so important for the church. He began this preface by writing the words, I love music. By the way, you can't, you can't really, as, as much as I'm here in a Presbyterian church and I share that tradition with you, we just need to admit it's hard to imagine Calvin writing the words, I love music. All right? But Luther, unembarrassed, in the preface immediately just declared, I love music, unless there's any misunderstanding, I love music. He said that uh, the censure of music by fanatics does not please me. Now, Luther's one of the few people in the history of the Christian church who could say, with such thunder, does not please me, knowing that this is not just a matter of personal reflection, he's establishing policy, as so many others are following his leadership in the Reformation. So speaking of the radical reformers who dispense with music, he called them fanatics, and he said, they do not please me. For, he said, and we need to follow carefully, music is a gift of God and not of man. Secondly, it creates joy joyful hearts. Three, for, for it drives away the devil. Four, for it creates innocent delight, destroying wrath, unchastity, and other excesses. 
He says, I place it next to theology. Then lastly, he said, he loves music, for music reigns in the lives of the saints. It leads to a life of peace. Some years back, I had the experience of attending a series of lectures on Luther by the late Heiko Obermann. Obermann was one of the great historians of the Reformation and of Luther in particular. He wrote a very important biography of Luther entitled, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. It's a great title. Obermann was speaking, and I was invited to be a part of this group, and we were all very young and, uh, at the time, obscenely healthy. And Dr. Obermann was in the middle of a lecture when he looked to us and interrupted himself, and he said, you young men cannot possibly understand Luther. We can't. He said, no, you can't understand Luther because Luther lived between life and death every day of his life. In the medieval world, parents would pray with their children, knowing that their children might not make it through the night. An infection could come. The, the, the plague could arise. Any number of ills could, could befall anyone. And the one who looks healthy today, in a day long before not only modern medicine, but even the understanding of germ theory and all the rest, a, a, a child who looked healthy and hale one day could die before the next morning. And, and Luther, of course, because of the gospel, had enemies. He had a, a very realistic understanding that he might very well die as a martyr for the cause of the Reformation at so many different points. Obermann said, you young men really can't understand Luther because you sleep well at night and you expect when you go to bed at night to get up in the morning. But not only Luther, but most in the medieval era, when they closed their eyes at night, did so in terror, not knowing that they would wake up and see their loved ones in the morning, but instead they may wake up to the judgment of God where the difference would be heaven or hell. They would be either with the Father or with the devil. Let's look more closely at what Luther had to say here. First of all, he said that he loves music because music is a gift of God and not of man. The first and most important affirmation that Luther made about music in the church is that music is God's gift. It is not a human invention. It is nothing that human beings create and give back to God. That would be a form of idolatry if indeed it were set loose in a sinful world. Instead, it is a gift that God has given to his people in order that his people may then praise him. And because it is a gift of God, the church should be unembarrassed to incorporate it into its worship in the right way, in its proper space. But there should be no embarrassment whatsoever because music is a gift of God. And because it is a gift of God, it is to be received joyously and received with a stewardship among the faithful. Secondly, he said that he believed in music for it creates joyful hearts. Now, here again, we should be somewhat humbled by the fact that we are not so joyful as we should be when we sing. Luther would be the first to tell us that we should listen more carefully to what we're singing because if we believe this, we should be singing it joyfully. Now, joy in the medieval world was a very rare thing. At least it would be to us when you consider all that they did without. But they understood what perhaps we do not and that is that joy is not something that can be lost in the busyness of our lives and all the consumer thrills of our lives and all the creature comforts of our lives. Ultimately, joy is only going to come because in the face of death, we can say with absolute certainty, I am his and he is mine. And then we sing with joyful hearts. Third, he said that we are to sing and to incorporate hymnody in our worship for it drives away the devil. 
Now, here again, we should be humbled and somewhat embarrassed because we think ourselves a little bit more sophisticated than Luther in this. We would like to think that it is not so urgent that we drive the devil away. Well, if you were listening to what we've been singing thus far, even this evening, we've been singing about driving the devil away. Luther incorporated that into an incredible number of the hymns that he leaves us in order to say it is important that the church understand that it has enemies. And as the Apostle Paul said, the most important enemies are the enemies that are invisible. The principalities and powers, the rulers of the spirits of the age. Luther understood the personalization of evil in the devil and in his demons, and he warned the church, you had better be aware of the fact that the devil hates music because it is God's gift. And if you want to drive the devil away, the most important thing you can do, other than the preaching of the gospel, is to sing. And by the way, he said the devil actually hates all music. But the music that is the music of the gospel, such as the gospel hymn, he hates most of all. It irritates him so much that he will flee because he cannot stand to hear it. He said this, The devil, that creator of saddening cares and disquieting worries, takes flight at the sound of almost any hymn or of any music, just as he takes flight at one word of theology. In terms of what Luther left us, he leaves us not only the reformation of the German worship, he called the German mass, but the incorporation of such things as chorales within the life of the church. His hymn legacy that is left to us includes, first of all, the lesson that we are to glorify God in all that we sing. We are to understand that we sing because worship is such a central part of the life of the church. And there we are to understand that we are to sing those songs that are fitting, those songs that, that have quality, those songs that are in the vernacular, those songs, as he says, that are going to accomplish everything that a hymn is to do. Those songs that will glorify God through content. Measuring our hymnody, or so much of contemporary hymnody, over against Luther is to recognize how there was this great shift from singing, as Luther would have us sing, about the objective acts of God in the salvation of his people in Christ to the subjective experience that has been so much the focus of church music in the 19th and 20th centuries. Luther, of course, sings with, with the affirmation of that subjective experience, but the truths he's declaring are not the truths in which he would begin to sing with the first person singular or even the, the first person plural. Instead, he sings and would have us to sing the declaration of God's saving act in Christ in terms of the objective truth of what God has done for us not so much in the experience that is our bent to sing. Secondly, he understood the hymns are necessary to teach. Catechesis was his concern. As he wrote, it is important that young people learn by music, not just by preaching. They need to learn by spiritual songs, not just by the preaching of the word. Now, this is said by the reformer who said that the preaching of the word, the right preaching of the word, is the first mark of the church. But it is not naked in worship. Worship is to be filled out also with the singing of, of hymns, with the offering of prayers, with the public reading of Scripture, all in the vernacular, all declaring the objective acts of God for our salvation. And the teaching is so important, as he made clear for children. When you look at that first hymn that we heard as the children sang it together, you'll notice that it is basically the Apostles' Creed that is both summarized and expanded. 
Luther did not so much paraphrase scripture in his hymns as he did sermonize. In other words, what you find in the hymns, such as in a mighty fortress, is not just an interpretation of the psalm, it is instead more a homiletical exercise that has been expanded into a hymn. The hymns, he said, would teach, would teach the people of God, and would teach not only the children, but the older folks as well, declaring the objective truths of what God has done for us so that the church that rightly believes will rightly sing, and such that the church that rightly sings will also rightly believe. Third, he said that the church must sing hymns in order to, to stand with the saints. The singing of the hymn is the affirmation of the communion of the saints. We are saying, we are singing what the saints have been singing, not only since the establishment of the church, but throughout all eternity. We are gathering to sing a song that is not a new conversation. It is, it is not a new song in the sense it's declaring something that, that, is, that is new in our experience. We are instead standing with that great host of witnesses, such as we find in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, such as we find in the annals of church history. When we sing hymns, we are singing. And, and by the way, sometimes that means we are literally singing the words. One of the most important things to me as I'm here with you tonight is that we are singing in our own language what for half a millennium has been sung by faithful Christians. That should ground us in a deep sense of joy and satisfaction. Luther said the church must have hymns for the fellowship of Christ's people, which is enriched and fulfilled through common song. There again was the contrast with the Catholic Mass. The Catholic Mass did not call, as he said, persons together in terms of mutual affirmation. They were simply receiving, and, and, and that through a veil. Now, in the vernacular, they are declaring these things together. This is Luther's affirmation also, the priesthood of all believers, and it took concrete form in the fact that Luther not only left us hymns, he left a hymnal so that, that those who came into the life of the church would have not only the hymnal, but would have the scripture, one in each hand, in the common worship of the church. Fifth, Luther would encourage us to sing hymns without reservation because we are to engage in spiritual warfare. And he would warn us that if we do not think we are engaged in spiritual warfare, we fool ourselves and rob Christ of the glory he has in showing himself victorious over the principalities and powers. And he would say, if we do not understand that we are engaging in spiritual warfare when we are singing songs and hymns of praise, then we do not understand the delight of Christ's people in chasing the devil out of the room and making him look for some place in the world where he will not have to hear such a song. Sixth, Luther would have us to understand the importance of hymns to declare the gospel to any who may hear. This is so very important. To any who may hear. That anyone hearing these songs would hear the gospel, necessarily would hear the gospel. We read together from Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. And it reminds us of what was at stake with Luther. The Reformation for Luther was not an interesting personal project. It was not a, it was not a, a, a theological project that he had undertaken. It was a matter of life and death. Luther, the Augustinian monk, had come to the understanding of his own sinfulness, and he'd come to the simultaneous understanding of God's perfect righteousness. And Luther, the Augustinian monk, could not possibly understand how, according to the theology he had received by those who were his teachers, he could understand how a righteous God could receive sinful humanity. 
And it was the book of Romans in general, it was the first eight chapters in particular, that led Luther to the understanding of, first of all, not just justification by faith as a theological principle, but to how he, as a wretched sinner, could be justified. He came to understand, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that the just shall live by his faith. He came to understand, as Paul declares here in Romans chapter 3, that now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then we have in this text the very clear declaration of Christ. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus Martin Luther discovered, by the scripture, the gospel. The gospel that told him the just shall live by his faith. And... and the gospel that he discovered in Scripture that makes very clear that this gift that God has given to us as he put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood is to be received by faith. And the faith, as he makes clear here, the faith that justifies is the faith that creates a church and is the faithful who then sing these things together. Luther, the Augustinian monk, loved music. But Luther, the reformer, believed that music was as important as life and death. Martin Luther, the Augustinian monk, had an appreciation of music and had great skill as a musician. But Martin Luther, the pastor and the reformer, understood that the gospel itself summons those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to sing, to sing faithfully and to sing defiantly. Jeffrey Wainwright once described and defined a hymn as a confession of faith set to music, and every good and proper hymn is. Hymns have comforted God's people, not only in the communion of singing them together, but sometimes even in the dark hours of the night when the Christian believes himself or herself to be alone. Elizabeth Elliot writes of what it was like to be in that Amazonian jungle when her husband, along with others, had been taken and they were feared to be dead, and she said she remained sane through that night by singing the hymns. And I'll remember her saying when I was a college student that someone had told her that when you sing a hymn, you're never singing alone, because when you're singing a hymn, you're singing with the saints who throughout all the ages are singing the same. It was a bit of an ordeal to get here yesterday. Uh, they emptied the plane twice, telling us it was unlikely we would get from Chicago, which was my midpoint, to get here to Philadelphia. And we sat on the ground for about four hours waiting to see if folks here would ever decide to open the airport. During those four hours, I was reading some material I brought with me, including some of my favorite works on Luther. I had them sitting on the seat beside me, which was now quite vacant, and the staff was on the airplane. A flight attendant came over and looked at the material and sat in the seat on the aisle and started talking to me. She said, why are you reading about Luther? I said, well, you know, tomorrow is Reformation Day. She said, I guess it is. And uh, she said, so are you just reading up on Luther for Reformation Day? I said, no, I'm going to be speaking tomorrow night on 
Luther and his contributions to hymnody. And she said, isn't that interesting? She said, I grew up in Germany. Uh, she said, as a little girl, I heard those hymns sung by my grandmother. She said, my parents weren't Christians. But as my grandmother sang, I learned about Jesus because she sang Luther's hymns as she baked, as she cooked, as she cleaned, as she bathed. And as a little girl, I learned the gospel by those hymns. Then she said, remember this. During those years of communism in the East, lots of German grandmothers defied the Communist Party by singing these hymns to their grandchildren. And she said, I knew of little children in the East who came home from school wearing their communist cadet outfits and would walk into the house and their grandmother would serve them a snack and she would sing Luther's hymns. Nothing would please Luther more that God's people sing these hymns for the fellowship of the saints and to defy the devil. It's good and proper that we gather together in this night to sing what must be sung. We need to hear the advice of Luther. Luther required Lutheran preachers to be trained in music. And even today in Lutheran seminaries, you have to graduate with a certain proficiency in music to be ordained as a pastor. Luther said, never trust a theologian who won't sing. Don't, don't, he said, call a pastor who can't sing. And just remember, the devil cannot and will not sing. It's God's gift, and God will not let him have it. It drives him to distraction, and it is the job of the saints to make him flee. That ought to encourage us as we continue to sing, even tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you to pray with great thankfulness for all that you've given us in the saints, including in this saint we know as Martin Luther. Father, we thank you for how he contributed to your church, not only theology and doctrines and treatises, but hymns and a hymnal. Not only a German translation of the scripture into the vernacular, but hymns that were sung by the people as they understood the words and sang them as a declaration of their faith, a confession of doctrine, and as an act of defiance. Father, may we do so with no less passion in this day, and may we do so to your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A brilliant lecture, just absolutely brilliant. So let me circle back and make the point I want to make in light of what he said. Did you catch? There was two two things he said in there, uh, actually three, <laughs> that just really stick out in my mind. Yeah, no, maybe four, but no, here's the idea, okay? That woman, the stewardess, talking about how the hymns of Martin Luther taught her the gospel growing up in communist East Germany and how her grandmother taught her those hymns and by teaching her those hymns, she, she heard the gospel. Because, as that one guy said, each hymn is a confession of faith set to music. If that's true, then what can you say of a 7-Eleven praise song? What is it confessing? Mystical nonsense? And then the other one. 
the one missionary lady who in her struggles and in the darkness and the terror of death that she was facing, she would sing those hymns and she remembered somebody saying to her, when you sing a hymn, never sing alone. Because you sing with all the company of heaven who laud and magnify the glorious name of Jesus, the great cloud of witnesses, those who've come out of the great persecution, the great tribulation, they sing it along with you, because when you sing a hymn, heaven sings too. Can that truly be said of a zero-content, mantra-like, mystical 7-Eleven praise song? I don't think so. There's so little content there that they truly have so little value. And yet, through, through my adult life, I find myself singing these hymns myself. Because these make up the music and the worship of the churches that I've been members of for decades now. I remember my children, some of their first words were some of these hymns. And they've learned the faith through these hymns. I don't think that they would have learned the faith through 7-Eleven praise songs. Just something to consider. Okay, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith and another broadcasting week. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us and you're, you're really finding value in this program and it's really truly helping you to understand scriptures and hear the gospel preached to you and helping you sharpen your doctrinal discernment and understanding the scriptures then support us financially because we truly need your help to keep doing what we're doing because we can't do it without you. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>